Before I get into the uh, sermon or the teaching of the Word this morning, I want to say a quick word of encouragement. I know that many of you, um, due to various factors, weren't with us on Wednesday night, and uh, we took a vote, which I'm, I'm excited about, and uh, let me say before I tell you what that is, I uh, have been raising money outside of the church, and then uh, I also met with Bob Shaw and talked with his family about funds that were given for Elaine Shaw after she passed in honor of her. And so we're going to combine the money that I raised and the money that the Shaws have. And uh, Joe Brown, Dave's brother, uh, has a flooring company, and uh, we're going to take the 30-year-old carpet out and replace it with hardwoods here in the next few weeks. And so that was voted on on Wednesday night, and I didn't want everybody uh, to walk in here and the carpet's gone and hardwoods are in, and you're like, I didn't even know we were doing this. And so I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. Um, without further ado, let me, uh, let me pray for us, and we'll look at God's Word together. Father, you know that pastor can prepare diligently, and he can study and read and pray, but if you do not show up in the power of your Holy Spirit, there will just be words. Father, what we need is a visit from you. What we need as a church is your spirit to rest on us, to anoint us as your people. God, would you take your word through the power of your spirit, and would you speak mightily into the hearts of your people? If there would be one here that does not know you, Father, I pray you'd take your word and show them through the teaching of it where they stand before you. And so, God, we invite you as your people to come, be with us, teach us, help us to hear the things that you have to say in your word. And we give you great thanks for that and for your word. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Dave just read to you our passage, and so you know that there's at least two things, two big things that are happening in the text. Judas is going to betray Jesus. That happens early in the text. And then later, Peter is going to deny Jesus. And that happens towards the end of what Dave read. So that's kind of the big picture. Those are two things that we're going to look at, the betrayal and the denial. Suppose, though that we finish our worship service here today, and after we leave here, I go over to a restaurant, and I have a pre-ordained meeting, arranged meeting, with a hired assassin. And over lunch, what we decide and what we determine is how it is that tomorrow 
we're going to take your life. Me and this assassin. Now, I'm giving the message, you know, here at 11 o'clock. But at 12.30, I'm meeting with a hired assassin at a restaurant nearby to talk about how we're going to have Tony come and whack you tomorrow. But if that's not bad enough, I've already prearranged it where tonight you're cooking me dinner at your house. I'm going to come over and probably have ribs because that's what I like, and I've asked you to cook ribs. And we're going to talk and interact and as if nothing's wrong, nothing's up. And then I'm going to go over and find my seat on the couch and we're going to watch a, a good Netflix episode with each other. And the whole time, I know I've already arranged for your death tomorrow. That's a wicked man. I would be a very wicked man. That's exactly what's happening in our text today with Judas. That's the story. Judas is at dinner with Jesus, and he knows what he's about to do. And he acts as if nothing's going on. You know, the interesting thing about it is you study the text, is he's, Judas is not even going to get rich. If I was going to do that, and take the chance of going to prison for life, it would, it would most certainly mean I would be getting millions of dollars. I just can't imagine that I would do it for less. But when you study the text, the 30 pieces of silver that Judas is given for what he's going to do, each piece of silver in today's economy would be about $20. So if you do 30 times 20, you get 600 So for $600, Judas is going to betray Jesus, his friend, supposedly, for 600 measly dollars. It's crazy. No one likes a traitor. And certainly no one likes to be betrayed. You know, most of us don't receive betrayal on a national scale so maybe we don't relate to that. But it's, it's interesting to me, even in the last week, how many stories I have heard of 25-year-old marriages like mine and my wife, not that we're doing this, uh, ending in divorce. And uh, I got to believe that a divorce is a little bit like experiencing betrayal, maybe, maybe a whole lot like experiencing betrayal. I'm guessing, because I watched my parents go through it, the feelings of being betrayed run deep when you encounter a divorce. In our text, Jesus, it says in verse 21, was troubled. We see also that he was betrayed and then later on in our text, we see Peter denying him. And yet, all the while, he's a steadfast Savior on his way to the cross. On his way to the cross that he might redeem us from our sin. On the other hand, on the contrary, 
when we are troubled, especially maybe even in our doubts, and someone asked me, I guess because I'm a pastor, do you ever, do you ever doubt, you know, this whole thing? And I'm like, are you kidding? All the time. Yes. It wouldn't be faith if, if I didn't have doubts, you know? When we feel betrayed, and often we will by God, when we feel denied, instead of steadfastly moving forward, we often cash out in our relationship with God. Jesus in our text is modeling this steadfastness. But here's a question. See if you can answer this one. Why was Judas following Jesus at all? It kind of, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It wasn't because of spiritual reasons or motives, like maybe you're following Jesus. Why was Jesus follow? I mean, why was Judas following him at all? We, could, we can speculate. I'll speculate with you for just a minute. Let's give Judas the benefit of the doubt for just a second. Let's say that it started good for Judas. Let's, let's just give him that. But somewhere along the way, we know it turned from being a good reason to absolute heinous evil, to portray the only being in the universe who is perfect is a heinous evil. And so Judas starts good, but he doesn't finish well. And so I should have a quote here, and the quote is, if you choose to believe the lie that Jesus isn't enough in your life, or if you believe that he isn't living up to your expectations, it's a more subtle, but it's a very real form of betrayal. In other words, you've got some Judas in you, and so do I. We're tempted, all of us, to find life in security. We're tempted to find life in comfort. We're tempted to find life in enjoyment and entertainment. These are all things that God gives, but they're not God himself. We don't really, at the core, need more comfort at the core. We don't really, at the core, need more security. What we need is more of him. That is our greatest need. Because we can find in him that even if we don't have all those other things, there's still this inner, unexplainable, mysterious joy and goodness in our lives. So, the definition of an idol or a God is looking for life somewhere other than your creator. Where is it that you look for life other than him? It is God himself who sustains our lives moment by moment. Listen to this. As you sit here right now, let's just take an average. Your heart is beating. 
80 times per minute, maybe less, maybe more, but let's take this for the, for the example. If, if your heart beats 80 times a minute, in about an hour, your heart will beat 4,800 times. And so my plan is to speak to you for about 30 minutes. Your heart's going to beat about 2,000 and something times in the time that I speak. So that's a whopping 115,200 times a day your heart will beat. Over the course of a year, your heart will beat about 42 million times, 48,000, 42 million and 48,000 times. If you live to be 80 years old, your heart would have beaten in approximately 3,363,840,000 times. And we know we have people sitting here that have passed that by a significant amount. Every beat, and this is my point, every beat of your heart is sustained by the God who created you every time. Every cell that divides and is healthy in your body is God's sustaining grace. Every breath that you take in that fills your lungs, it's His air. It's His breath He is giving you. A million little things must happen in such a precise way for you to even be sitting here looking at me in this very moment. And you know what else is interesting about that? You're not even controlling it. Since you've been sitting here, have you said, heart, beat, 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 beat? No. It's just happening for you. By God's design and pleasure. God is sustaining your life even as you sit here and listen to me. Therefore, there should be, there should be in all of us a gratitude to the Creator for life, for love, for happiness, for family. But we know by experience, don't we? that many or maybe even most of us don't even acknowledge his goodness to us and maybe even most of us don't even acknowledge his existence. Remember, I'm talking about betrayal. Judas, his betrayal is recorded in the scriptures and it's really obvious. Our Our betrayal, not quite so obvious, But I think it's real. Individuals and cultures can adopt Christianity for various reasons. But perhaps a lot of the reasons we adopt Christianity is really very unbiblical. This leaves us to ask, do we have a little bit of Judas in us? Or maybe even Peter who denies Christ. 
there are certainly other motives for following God. And here's a thoughtful, a thought-provoking idea. I should have a slide. Um, When the Greeks got the gospel, they turned it into a philosophy. When the Romans got it, they turned it into a government. When the Europeans got it, they turned it into a culture. And when the Americans finally got it, they turned it into a big business. What do I mean by that? Remember, I'm saying there's other reasons to follow Jesus that aren't necessarily good reasons. It is not helpful that an American Christianity has become a big business. And you say, well, how's it become a big business? There are pastors all over our country today that are standing up before their congregation and they have not just a million dollars in the bank, they have millions of dollars in the bank. Now, is money in and of itself evil? No. But the love of money is. And I believe in American Christianity, we have turned Christianity into a way for some people that are saying that they're working for the kingdom of God to get filthy rich. And I think it's a crime. I think it's an evil. And and mostly, these people buy their jets, these pastors, fly over to African countries sometimes, people that have nothing, and they tell them if you'll follow God, you'll be wealthy, healthy, and wise, and they get all their money in the bags, and they put it on their jet planes, and they fly back to the U.S. more rich than when they left, and they took the money from people that were 100,000 times poorer than them. That's what I mean. By Americans got the gospel, and they turned it into big business. Let me just say... That isn't the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not the kingdom. Jesus went to the cross, and we have American pastors going to the bank. That's heinous. That's betrayal. It's gross. Perhaps some of our motives are more along the lines of Judas. We seek personal gain. Not because we wish to show Jesus as the supreme being that he is, but because we like the extravagant lifestyle and the self-importance that being a Christian in the United States can afford us. Typically, we discover our motives When we're tested, we ourselves are often unsure of our motives. How are our motives tested? Typically, they're tested when we don't get what we want. That's how Jesus tends to test our motives. When our circumstances do not turn out as we'd hoped and prayed. Here's what Judas was thinking, I believe. Judas's motives were that Jesus was going to usher in this political kingdom. 
He was going to be king of the Jews. He was going to knock out the Romans, and he was going to make life easy for all the Jewish people. Well, when we get to a place in the story in John 13, it's become clear to Judas that isn't going to happen. And so he cashes out. I'm going to get what I can get out of this. And it looks like 30 pieces of silver. Because what I thought was going to happen if I followed Jesus isn't going to happen. Now, look with me at John 13, verse 21 in your Bibles. John 13, verse 21. I'm reading from the ESV. I, I know that uh, the NIV is a lot of what we have, is what we have in the pews. John 13, 21. Jesus says, after these things, or it says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, Here's my question about this text. See if you're tracking with me here. Why does Jesus not say immediately? Why does it, he, he already knows. Why does he not say immediately to the apostles, it's Judas. Judas is about to betray me, guys. He doesn't do that. Why not? I mean, he knows. Why wouldn't he just say it? Instead, he kind of speaks in this, Riddle, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is about to betray me. Here's a possible answer. Perhaps he wants the other 11 to do some healthy self-examination. Perhaps he would like us to do some healthy self-examination. Where do I get that? There's two places the first one is 2 Corinthians 13, 5. That passage, Paul says to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And then he says, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. You see, follow my thinking here, y'all. If America got the gospel and somehow a lot of people figured out how to make a lot of money off the gospel, one of the ways you make a lot of money off the gospel, it takes a lot of truth to float a lie. In other words, you don't tell the whole truth because the gospel in and of itself is hard. The gospel says this. You and me and every other human alive has a sin problem, and it's bad. It's really bad. There is no way you can earn yourself to heaven. But the church through generations, the reason the Reformation happened and Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall is because the church was telling people, if you just put enough money in the coffer, you can go to heaven. See, human beings want to believe we can do something to be right with God. But the gospel says there's nothing you can do to be right with God. 
If you could do something to be right with God, why in the world would Jesus have to die on a cross? Because the, the idea there is that he's going to be a substitute for your sin. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and what he did on the cross, paying the penalty for your sin, then the Father receives you into heaven. And only then. There is no other way. No other way. But in American Christianity, what we figured out was that if we told people half-truths, yeah, you're, you're bad, but you're not that bad. You're bad, but if you'll just be good, you can join our church, get baptized, and you'll be in the fold. And so people came in droves. Man, it's like I, I, got, I got God under my thumb. All I got to do is come down that aisle and pray a prayer and I can live like hell the rest of my life and when I die, I'm going to heaven. I got it made. This is great. I'm holding God hostage. That's half the truth. That ain't even close to the gospel. When, when God comes into a life and he says through his Holy Spirit, when we become believers, he comes into our life and he begins to change us from the inside out. No longer do we want to live like hell. We all of a sudden from the inside out, our nature is new. We have a, been taking a heart of stone and been given a heart of flesh. And now I want to live for him. And things begin to happen. Suddenly, it's been sweeter and sweeter and sweeter for me as I grow in Christ. But you know, and I know, we've got family members and we've got friends and we've got neighbors. They came down and they prayed a prayer and they hadn't been back to church in 25 years. But if you ask them today, they'll say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Maybe they got a little Judas. Maybe they got a little too much Judas in them. They don't understand the truth. They're following for a bad reason. And in the end, and here's the thing, you're adorable. Uh, and I've been watching all of y'all kind of look at her every now and then. She's cuter than me. I get it. Uh, but the issue is our souls hang in the balance. Men have wanted to build massive churches and build their reputations more than they've wanted to tell the people of God the truth of the gospel. You're worse than you ever thought you were. Cheer up. <laughs> you need Jesus more than you ever thought you did. Cheer up. But if you get the gospel and you take him as your savior, you have the hope of eternal life. So we should let the story of Judas shake us. We should. The story of Judas should, say, should shake us. If you read what the text says and what Dave read, 
It's interesting as you read to the bottom. Judas was one of the 12 apostles. He wasn't just a member at First Baptist Church Chattahoochee, though that may give you some feeling that you're safe, you're in the fold, you're a Christian, you're going to heaven when you die. He was a freaking apostle. He was one of the main people. And you know what? The other 11 didn't know he was the traitor. If you read the text, it says because he kept the money, they thought Jesus sent him out to go buy food for the festival. They didn't realize even then that he was the traitor. So what that tells me is you could be sitting right here in front of me right now looking perfectly Christian and not know him. And not know him. And Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And it's interesting because look at a parallel gospel, Matthew 26, 22. Parallel gospel to what's happening in our text. I want you to see what the disciples said in response to that statement. It says, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? The the other 11 are now doing this self-examination. Is it I, Lord, that's going to betray you? I personally think Jesus wanted them to go through that exercise because of what it says in Corinthians. I think it's helpful for the believer to ask the question, am I really growing in my passion for God? Am I really growing in my desire for him? Am I seeing him sweeter today than I did yesterday? Because I'm just, I'm telling you this. The church in North America, because of the business thing, is full of people that are sitting there thinking they got God under their thumb and they've got it all worked out because they prayed a prayer. But the truth of the matter is there's no fruit in their life. And when I say fruit, I'm talking about Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, that's, that's not there. What's in their life is bitterness and anger and frustration. But, but I'm a Christian, and y'all have heard me say, I've got the ticket, I've got the ticket. When I die, I'm going to heaven. I got the ticket. I got the ticket 38 years ago. I remember it. I remember it so clear. I walked down that aisle, and I said, I want to become a Christian. He said, you are. Well, join the church. He spun me around. Wham, next thing I know, I'm dunked. I'm up. I'm good. But the fact is, for 38 years, there's never been any fruit. You're not growing in your love for God. You just want to go to heaven and you don't want to go to hell. Well, nobody can blame me for that. But you know what? Jesus is in heaven. And when you think of it, do you ever think about that? That I want to see Jesus. Or is it just I want to escape the flames of hell? Because I would say if it's the latter, 
you may have a Judas-like faith. And so, notice in our text at verse 23, we see them now reclining at the table. Remember, culturally, these tables were like this down here, and they would have a cushion, each of them, where they would recline back on their left elbow, kind of relaxed, almost like on the floor with a cushion, and they would eat with their right hand. And that's important. It's important because in 23 it says this, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, see how it says it, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So he's reclining, he's near him, they're on these small tables, he's got his elbow on the cushion, and we know he kind of leans back into Jesus' chest. And it says, you know, the disciple who Jesus loved, we know that's John because that's the way he refers to himself. But I love uh, the nonverbal communication that happens next in the text. Peter looks at John, and without speaking, he asks John to ask Jesus, who is it that's going to betray us? Could you imagine? I just think about covert ops, you know, it's like, Peter's over there, and he's like, and, uh, and John's like, Whoosh. you know, I got it. He leans over, and he asks Jesus, who is it? And it, it must be, if you follow the story, that Jesus says it in such a hushed tone that none of the others get it. I think somehow Peter got the, the verbal back, the nonverbal back to Peter. John got it back to Peter. But I don't think anybody else in the room got it because later it says when he got up and Jesus told him, go and do what you're going to do, they were like, well, he must be going to take the money bag and buy food. Well, in reality, no. He was going to betray Jesus. That's what he was going to do. Then it says also in verse 21, just briefly, it says, Jesus was troubled in spirit. Jesus was troubled in spirit. Why would he be troubled in spirit? It's interesting. You know, the Trinity is a mystery upon all mysteries. But what we do know, based on the Nicene Creed and the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., a group of 309 Christian leaders of that time were brought together by Constantinople, and they hammered out and, and said there's a heresy that Jesus is not the Christ. He is the Christ, meaning he is God and man in one. And that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all are one God with different persons. And so here, you're seeing the humanity of Jesus Troubled. Why? Because he's about to be betrayed. And he's about to go to the cross. And it's troubling. Now, switching here is coming down to the close. John 13, 31 through 33. Look with me at that. 31 through 33. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. 
If God is glorified in him, God will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, that's a lot of glorifying, isn't it? When, I, when, I, when I'm reading that, think about glorifying is death. Jesus, Jesus is going to go die, and that death is going to glorify Jesus, and it's going to glorify the Father. That's what that's all about, all the glorifying stuff. Then he says, little children, yet a little while while I'm with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Where I am going, you cannot come. And then Peter says, the natural next question, where are you going? Jesus says, you can't follow me, Peter, but you will follow me afterward. Why can't I follow you now? You know, Peter's the zealous. Why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you. And then what does Jesus tell him? Peter, the rooster will not crow before you deny me three times. I have to just admit to y'all, I didn't grow up on a farm. I had to Google, when do roosters crow? Do y'all know when they crow? In the morning. I thought that was true. I just wasn't 100% sure. So really what Jesus is saying here is, Peter, you're going to deny me three times in just a few hours because it's already evening. The rooster's going to crow in about seven hours. He's saying, you think you're going to follow me, but you're going to deny me not once, not twice, but three times in the next few hours. Why was Peter, you know, Judas, we've determined, he was in it for selfish ambition. Why was Peter not able to stay true? Why was Peter not able to stay faithful to Christ? I think the very first and obvious answer is fear. He thought he was going to be killed. The second answer, not as obvious, I think it was conviction. I don't yet think that Peter was sure 100% this is the Messiah, this is what he's told us, this is what's about to happen. How could he? How could he understand the resurrection before the resurrection? But what is so fascinating about Peter is in Mark 16, 7, after the resurrection, Jesus I mean, Peter has denied Jesus three times, but when Jesus is resurrected and the, the ladies show up, you know what he tells the disciples, I mean, the ladies? He says in Mark 16, 7, go tell the disciples, and then notice the, and Peter. Go tell the disciples that I've resurrected, and Peter. Jesus knew Peter had been living in shame and guilt ever since he denied him. And so he says, tell the, tell the guys and Peter. Tell Peter. Peter needs to know. I'm raised. I'm here. And here's, here's a bold statement. 
When I ask the question, why does God test us? Some of it is he, he wants to see us come through the test. He wants to see us pass the test. And this is where you're going to think, maybe I'm a heretic, maybe I am. I think God tests us sometimes because he knows we're going to fail. Yep, that's kind of crazy sounding. But here's the thing. Some of us need to fail miserably before we ever truly understand grace. And some of these tests, we fail, and then God comes in with his forgiveness, and our souls are finally at peace. We realize, I failed miserably, and God has forgiven me wonderfully and beautifully. Sometimes failure in our relationship with God is the best thing that can happen to us. And that's why I'm saying, I know I sound like a heretic, (laughs) but sometimes we need to fail to experience the loving grace of God. So go out and sin boldly. I'm teasing. So, I think Peter's experience of denying Christ three times gave him the conviction to go run a mission a yard from the gates of hell for the rest of his life. One artist, uh, musician, has lyrics that remind me of Peter's life. They may remind me of your life and mine. And here are the lyrics. There's no one more thankful to sit at the table than the one who best remembers hunger's pain. And no heart loves greater than the one who is able to recall the time when all it knew was shame. The wings of forgiveness can take us to heights we've never seen, but the wisest ones They'll never lose sight of where they were set free. Do you remember where you were set free? Or when? I do. Remember your chains. Remember the prison that once held you before the love of God broke through. Remember the place that you were without grace. When you see where you are now, Remember your chains, and remember, your chains are gone. Simon Peter said to the Lord, this is it, where are you going? Jesus answered him, I am going where you cannot follow. But what did he say after that? But you will follow later. Oh, Christian. You will follow him. He was talking about heaven. He was going to be with the Father. He was going to prepare a place for his people. But now, run in such a way that you will win the prize. That awaits us. Today, we run.